It's my delight to be with you today, and I trust as you've come to this week, you're coming with anticipation as to what God has to say to you regarding what he's doing around the world. You know, as I consider world missions, I believe that the role of the missionary is to build bridges of love over which the gospel message can pass in a way that's understandable to the hearer. When we consider perhaps what is the most well-known verse in scripture, what first comes to your mind? John 3:16. What does it say? Say it with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God so loved that he sent. You know, we continue to do that today, don't we? We send those that we love to those who don't yet know the love of the Father in order that they might come into eternal relationship with him, be forgiven of their sins, and live forever with God in heaven. God so loved that he sent. What does that love look like? Oftentimes when we consider those who are so different than ourselves, live in countries and cultures so different than ourselves, the expression of love oftentimes looks so different. What does that love look like? God so loved that he sent. You know, as we consider the issue of love, let me remind you of a passage of scripture. It's a very missions passage. You know it as the love passage, 1 Corinthians 13. Let me read it for you just as a reminder to give us a sense again of what that love is all about. Paul writes it this way. He says, I speak, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will be still. Where there, are tongues, or where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection is in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I'm fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. As we consider what that love looks like, one of our colleagues rewrote that passage of scripture from a missiological perspective, and he writes it this way. He says, I may be able to speak fluently the language of my chosen field and even understand its culture. But if I have no love, the impact of my speech is no more for Christ than that of a businessman who comes to exploit the people. I may have the gift of contextualizing God's word when I deliver it to my hearers. I may have all knowledge about their customs. I may have the faith needed to combat witchcraft. But if I have no love, I'm nothing. If I may give everything that I have to the poor, to the hungry in, my, in the slums, I might even give my life for them. But if I have no love, this does no good. Love is thinking in their thought patterns, caring enough to understand their worldview, listening to their questions, feeling their burdens, respecting them, identifying with them in their need, belonging to them. Love is eternal. Culture passes away. Dynamic equivalence will change because cultures change. Patterns of worship and church administration will need revision. Languages will be altered to, over time. Institutions will be replaced because these are not reality. 
Since I'm finite, I can only study how to express the message cross-culturally, trying to free it from my cultural bias. I'm able to do this only in a limited way, but I pray that the Spirit will use my life to show Christ to those with whom I work. Meanwhile, these remain identification, contextualization, and love. But the greatest of these is love. What does love look like in Indonesia? How is it that we build bridges of love over which the gospel message can pass in a way that's understandable to the hearer? You know, I had the privilege as a little boy being born and raised in Irianjaya, Indonesia. And Deb and I serve on that island today. It's the second largest island in the world, right above Australia there. And I remember as a little boy going away to boarding school. And uh, I left as a first grader, went to boarding school, and I thought I was going to summer camp. I didn't realize I was actually going to have to learn how to read and write and arithmetic and all that stuff. I thought I was just going to be able to go play. And uh, it wasn't long until I realized my perception of going away to uh, MK school wasn't just camp, but I actually did have to study. But I loved going away to boarding school. I loved going from the interior to the coast. The reason being is because where we live, it's only three degrees south of the equator, warm all year round, and there's tons of bugs. Boy, kids love bugs, don't they? Uh, you ought to see my little children as they uh, see all of the different kinds of bugs in Papua. One of my favorite was the rhinoceros beetle. Had big old horns on the bottom and one on the top. Had wings that could fly. It was a beetle about this big. It was kind of flew rumped down like that because it was rear heavy. And, uh, but I love that beetle. We used to enjoy all of the different kinds of bugs, especially when it went night and the lights went on and then all of the bugs would come to the light. Well, I remember in my dorm room, I was there with four other MKs and uh, one night one of those rhinoceros beetles died, came to its unfortunate end. And I remember as it hit the wall and slid down and then just kind of wiggled there for a while. In Indonesia, we have thousands of ants, millions of ants. I've been amazed as I've been back here in America. Where are the ants? There's no ants here. And, uh, you know, we have ants everywhere. And I remember my boy, uh, Bo, our five-year-old, he left a half-eaten Snickers bar on the counter here in the States. And I just left it there at night as an experiment. No ant ever came by. I was, I was incredulous. In Papua, they would have just covered that thing. It would have been gone by morning. Well, my old rhinoceros beetle, he died. And the ants are the vacuum cleaner of Papua, and they came to devour him. And we had a door or a window. It was kind of like that door frame there. And I remember as the ants came in, the beetle was on this side. They came over that door frame, down the other side, and they found Mr. Beetle. And they began working at him. And you know, ants, they always go back their same trail. And so those ants, they worked, and they started climbing that beetle up the wall. And started, I mean, it was amazing, all of the work they had to do. it. I thought, that was the stupidest ants I've ever seen in my life. And so as a little boy, I thought, I'm going to help those ants low. They can just go on the ground. It's so much faster, so much less work. Oh, they were busy working away, you know. And so I talked to them. They didn't listen. I tried to do a little ant dance. They didn't understand. No matter what I could do, I couldn't figure out how to communicate to those ants that they could just go along the ground. It was so much easier. So I did what any little boy in Papua does. I licked my fingers, and I went right across their line. You know, if you kind of disrupt their, their line, their smell there, they get all confused. And I was working to try to get them to go down. No matter what I did, they wouldn't understand. I thought, if I could just get into the body of an ant, I could do a little ant dance or talk ant or whatever it is that they do, and I could say, hey, guys, let's just go the easy way. You know, as I look at the world today, people are scrambling all around to try to figure out ways to get to God, aren't they? All of these different ways. I live in the largest Muslim world, nation in the world. And all of the religious ways in which they're trying to figure out how to get to God. 
And Jesus comes and he gives us the straight and narrow, doesn't he? He made a way so that we could understand how to get to the Father. All that we couldn't do in our flesh, Jesus Christ did for us. I'm reminded of the words of the great missionary spokesman Paul from Philippians 2. He says, your attitude should be the same of that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. You know, God did what I couldn't do. He got into the body of humanity in order to communicate with us the love of the Father. Missions is about building bridges of love over which the gospel message can pass in a way that's understandable to the hearer. What does that look like? Well, perhaps the only way that I could best communicate is if I could take you on a trip. You guys are game to go on a trip, aren't you? In 1996, my wife and I went to Mali, West Africa, where we served a term of service, and the last two terms have been in Indonesia. And so I'd like to take you to Mali, where God taught me some wonderful truths about building bridges of love. So Ben, he's been gracious enough to rent a big old motor coach, and we're going to head down to the airport and then fly over to... uh, uh, maybe D.C. or to New York. From there, we get on one of the big birds, maybe a 777, and fly to Paris, France. We arrive in Paris, and then we change planes and fly from Paris down to Noach at Mauritania. From there on over to Bamako, we arrive. The heat is already beginning to simmer. You can see the African sun is risen, and it's beating on that black tarmac, and the, wi- the heat waves are just dancing across it. You work your bag down the way, and eventually we make our way through the customs, and, and we load into a truck and head down to our house there in the capital city of Bamako. Splitting that city is the... Uh, Niger River, right down through the middle, and our house isn't too far away from it. You make your way there, and we unload your stuff. You're tired because of the jet lag, and so you sleep. About 3 o'clock in the morning, you awake, and, uh, you know, jet lag uh, still hasn't worked its way all through yet, and so you wake up and have your devotions and pray and have your devotions again and pray, and still the sun isn't up. About 5.30, I awake. Well, I'm going to head down and go visit a friend of mine. I want to go buy some milk. And uh, the people that we were working there were the Fulani people. And uh, so I want to go buy some milk from them. And so you decide to come along, and that's great. We arrive at uh, the little stable where these kids are not really a stable, but it's just an open courtyard with a broken down mud brick fence. And uh, the little shepherd boys are kind of incredulous that we've arrived so early. They're rubbing sleep out of their eyes. And uh, But we, we arrive there because I want to see what the milk's coming out of and what it's going into before I buy it. And uh, so they begin the milking process. And Fulanis make milk cows in a beautiful way. They take a little calf over to the female cow, and it starts nursing, kind of priming the pump, getting things going early in the morning. And then they take, and uh, after that little calf is nursed a little bit, he ties it off to the mom cow's front leg. And so long as that little calf is tied off to that front leg, that female cow will stand there and won't move a bit. No reason for a stanchion or any fancy milking machine. That cow will just stand there, and then he begins the process of milking. And they take a calabash gourd about this big around. It's cut in half, and it makes a beautiful milking bucket. They tuck it down between their knees like that and squat, and they begin to milk away. They'll milk the whole herd like that. After they finish, we heard hearing that milk sing into that little gourd. And after it's done, then we hand them three one-liter bottles. They fill that up, and uh, we prepare to, uh, to head back. You're thinking, good, we can go home, get something to eat. Not so. I want you to know that in West Africa, I never bought milk because I just wanted to buy milk. I bought it because it was an opportunity to do what? To build relationship. 
And so it's not about just getting the task done. It's about using it as an opportunity to build relationships with people, build bridges. And so we would go then to Fatima's house. Fatima is the owner of these 60 head of cattle. And uh, so we go there and we greet her. She finds a chair. We sit down. We greet. And the Fulani or the Malian people, they live in courtyards. And you have one family, you get to meet lots in their courtyard. And so we've met Fatima and many others that are in her courtyard. And over time, we've come to realize that Fatima is a single mom. Her husband passed away. She's a nurse. She has two children, a boy and a girl, and the, uh, the both in university. She's working to try to get them through. She's beginning to get aged, and her body is beginning to break down. And we give opportunity to be able to pray for her and love her and uh, build relationship there. Well, we make it back to the house. In Mali, we had great things to eat for breakfast, oatmeal or granola or oatmeal or granola, so you can take your pick, and uh, two different kinds of milk, powdered milk or fresh milk. And uh, the day before you arrived, I've already bought some uh, fresh milk, pasteurized it, and it's ready to go. You might not like it. It has an interesting kind of garbagey flavor. And the reason being is because that herd of cattle grazes right in front of our house where there's a huge community garbage pit, and they just kind of rummage through it like a bunch of pigs. And, uh, you know, I never bought milk in West Africa because it tasted good. You know why I bought it? Because it gave opportunity to build relationships. And I want you to know, we've got to work hard at building great relationships over which the gospel message, bridges of love over which the gospel message can pass in a way that's understandable to the hearer. Well, I've decided this day to go visit a friend of mine. His name is Emmanuel Sidibay. And uh, so we make our way over to his place. We've crossed the Niger River, arrived there. The very first thing Emmanuel does is he gets chairs for us. In Mali, you always find a place to sit for your guests. And so he gets chairs for us. Us men, we sit over in this area. You ladies kind of sitting over in this area. And then the very next thing he does is he goes to the well and he draws water. The water bucket is a unique thing. It's made out of the inner tube of an old truck tire. It's been stitched together on the two sides with a steel ring around the top. He throws it down into the well and he draws it out. I ran ahead and told you to go ahead and leave your filtered water at home and your water bottles at home. You see, in Mali, water is the source of life. If the rains come, the crops grow, the animals live, the people live. If the rains don't come, there's famine. And that's happened countless times as many, many have died. And so water is more than just quenching thirst. It's the source of life. And so Emmanuel goes and draws that water. And I've shared with you, it's easier for us to go and stop by and pick up some anti-diarrheal medicine or some bug or dewormer or something like that on the way home than it is to tear down the walls that have been erected by declaring to them that that which they offer to us life is inadequate for us. And so we are stretched. We give up our rights, as it were, in order to build bridges of love over which the gospel message can pass. And so Emmanuel brings to us the water, and he uh, dips a dipper into that bucket, and uh, he hands one to me. Uh, you're looking for yours. You don't get one. We all drink out of the same one t- together. And so I take a sip, and you're thinking, boy, I sure hope I get back to Erie safe. And, uh, but you're game. And so you take a sip, and it passes all around. After we've drunk our water, then it's time to uh, have our greeting time. And so you go through all of the West African greetings. Was your night good? Did you sleep in peace? The people of your household, your animals, your children. And after they've greeted us, then we greet them back. And then only then you begin in conversation. After we've had about two hours of conversation, I say to Manuel, Manuel, uh, we would like to have the road to go home. In West Africa, you don't just get up and leave. You always ask permission to just get up and leave would be rude. And so we asked for the road to go home. And he looks at me and he says, oh, Todd, I'm sorry. I can't give you the road to go home. You see, we've decided to have you for lunch. That is, we're not going to eat you, but we're going to have you eat lunch with us. And uh, so certainly we can't refuse. 
And so he has sent his wife down to the market. She's bought spaghetti noodles. He says, Todd, you can't believe it, but I didn't even know you guys were coming today. And I've been eating toe and millet for the last several months and was bored of it. And I had sent my wife down to buy spaghetti noodles. See how gracious God has been to you to provide such a wonderful meal. Well, obviously, we can't refuse. And so we prepared to eat. A little boy goes back to that well. He throws the bucket down in there and draws some more water out. Us men, we're now in a circle here. And you ladies, you're in a circle with your string chairs over there. And uh, the bucket is brought to us. Fortunately, we have soap, so we get to wash our hands. And so we wash our hands right into the bucket with the soap. And sorry, ladies, in West Africa, men go first. So we men, we get to wash first. And then after we're done with the same water, you ladies, you get to wash your hands. And uh, then it's about time to eat. Emmanuel stands up and he prays and thanks the Lord for the food. And then he takes, uh, we prepare to eat. In West Africa, you get to eat with your hands. Oh, my kids loved it out there. You just make a big spoon like that. Isn't that a fantastic spoon? I mean, that you can get a lot of food into a hand like that. And uh, so what you do is you eat with your right hand. The left hand you tuck behind your back. And uh, that's used for sanitary purposes. The right is used for eating. And so... Uh, we prepare to eat. And, uh, you know, I will never forget when American came over one time to ask us about it. And he, we were eating with our hands. He says, you know, Todd, it's kind of dirty, isn't it? I says, well, let's ask, let's ask him. And so I asked my Malian friend. I says, you know, uh, this fella thinks it's kind of dirty eating with your hands. He says, oh, not so. I says, what do you mean? He says, well, you Americans, you eat with silverware, right? Yeah. Forks and knives and spoons, right? Yeah. He says, do you know whose mouth that stuff has been in before it got into yours? Well, no. He says, well, my hand only goes into my mouth. A lot cleaner eating with my own hand. Well, that's a different perspective, isn't it? And so we get to eat with our own hand, hand and our own mouth. And, uh, you know, Malians make spaghetti in a wonderful way. Lots of grease, so it'll slide right down. Oh, you ladies, you look good with all that spaghetti sauce kind of running down your face there. And uh, we begin to eat. Well, we're working away. You eat from the center of the bowl to where you're seated in a pie shape. And uh, you don't reach around the bowl like that. Be rude. And so we begin to eat. Eat away. Oh, it's so great. And uh, about the time our stomach begins to get full, we uh, begin pulling away and thank Manuel for the food. He looks at us and he says, oh, my friends, you've hardly begun to eat. And now it's your clue. No longer do you eat to satisfy your needs. You eat to satisfy his need for love. You want to communicate to a Malian how you love them? You eat their food and you eat it well and you eat lots of it. I remember over in West Africa eating way more than I would ever eaten in my own home. Because I wanted to build bridges of love over which the gospel message could pass in a way that's understandable to the hearer. And so we eat some more. And only when Manuel begins to pull away do we recognize it's time for us to be able to pull away as well. After we've finished eating, again, men first. The same bucket we all washed our hands in, we get to wash our hands in again. This time, no soap. And uh, you don't just waste water in Molly. It's a precious thing. And so we men, we wash it. The grease is starting to float. Ladies, you get it after. Don't worry. It's just like oil of Olay. It'll rub right in. And... Uh, <coughs> After we eat, we ask Manuel, can we have the road to go home? He looks at us and says, oh, my friends, I'm sorry. I have to show you my area of ministry first. And so we start out. The first place that we come is to a spring. People from all over Bamako are coming to this area. It's believed that the waters from this spring have healing powers. The felt need of the people is so abundantly clear as they come, longing for healing. Some come and dip, the wa- dip water into a, uh, a little receptacle that they can drink for themselves. Others come and they have a lid. They can put it on to take it back to someone of whom in their household is very sick. There's an elderly man beside the spring and he has uh, a little jar where people are putting money. He's kind of the, the uh, guardian of the spring. 
As we consider what's going on here, our minds are reminded to what happened in John chapter 4. Jesus declared to the Samaritan woman, he says, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. As Malians are coming longing for healing, we have the gospel message to share with them, do we not? Jesus said to the people of his day and to those of our day, outside of me, your need will never be satisfied. I'm reminded of what is said in Matthew 14, verse 35 and 36. And when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. People brought all their sick to him and begged him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak. And all who touched him were healed. Men and women, I want you to know that we have the opportunity to share the message of the healer, Jesus Christ. As people are coming longing for healing, we go a little bit further. At this place, there's a young man. He's sitting on a little stool. Beside him is a bucket of water. He has in his hand a wooden pallet. It looks in the shape of what you might have in your mind's eye of the Ten Commandments pallet made out of stone. This is just one side of that. It's wood. He has a piece of notebook paper like this. On it are written Quranic verses that he received from the Muslim teacher. He's meticulously rewriting those verses onto that wooden pallet. As he comes to a conclusion, he takes that board and he thrusts it into that, that uh, bucket of water and he begins to vigorously wash all of that black ink away. We wonder together, he must have made a mistake, he needs to start over. About that time, he takes a dipper like the one you and I drank out of over at Manuel's house and he dips it into that black inky water and he drinks it into his person. We wonder together, why would he do that? You know, Muslims all across this globe, over a billion in number, believe that Arabic is the language of God. And as the language of God, it has intrinsic power. You know, Muslims know what it is according to their belief system, according to their holy book, how it is that they're to please God in hopes that they would make it into paradise. But there is no provision whereby they can accomplish it. There's no power whereby they can accomplish it. It is always a work of the flesh. And so this young boy is a folk Islamist. He tries to figure out how is it that I get the power of God into me so that I can fulfill what God is asking of me to do according to that belief system. And so he seeks a way in order to be able to ingest the very words of God into his person. God's word has something to say about this, does it not? Think about it. Jesus, when he's speaking to his disciples prior to his death, he says, I will not leave you as orphans. No, I will send to you the promised Holy Spirit the very person and presence of God dwelling within those who know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, having asked forgiveness of their sins, have have God dwelling within them as he declares us to be his temple, his dwelling place. The provision for us has been made in the person of Jesus Christ. What good news. We go a little bit further. The days come late. Manuel's apologized several times because it's so late, but... He says to us, Todd, I would just like to take you and your visitors one, to one more place. He says, there's a Muslim teacher here. He and I are seen as the holy men of this area. Would you come and honor him with your presence? And certainly we can't decline. And so we go there. And the very first thing that he does is he finds chairs for us to sit down like we did at Manuel's house. Then he goes to the well and he draws water. You're old pros now. You just take a sip right down. And then we greet. And then we begin a little bit of conversation. About then, the fourth call to prayer goes out over the minaret. He excuses himself and he goes to the corner of the courtyard. There's some running water there and he begins to wash his hands, allowing the water to run off of his elbows. He washes his ears, his eyes, his nose, 
his mouth, his feet. The entry and exit ways are symbolically washed before they enter into prayer. Five times a day, Muslims all across this globe remind themselves of their impurity, their inability to walk into the presence of God. The felt need is so abundantly clear as we consider what is going on. What does God's word have to say about this? In Hebrews chapter 4, the writer states this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are yet without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace, how? With confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. You know, men and women, God in his mercy through the sending of his son Jesus Christ has done the washing necessary to make it possible for you and I to enter into his presence at any moment. God, in his great mercy, has done the washing that we could never do. What good news. You know, as I consider missions, it's really about building bridges of love over which the gospel message can pass in a way that's understandable to the ear. You know, you may never have the opportunity to eat uh, Malian spaghetti with your hands or drink milk that has a unique garbagey flavor to it or drink water out of well that you're not sure about its purity. But I want you to know in equal way, God is calling you to build bridges of love here in North America. There are countless thousands, yes, millions that are coming to our shores who live within our cities who don't yet know Jesus Christ as their Savior. And Jesus declares to us, he says, I'm the light of the world. And then in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you are the light of the world. I want you to know God makes his appeal, the Apostle Paul says, through us, as though the ministry of reconciliation were done through us. You are that tool. Just so that uh, perhaps we can understand even a little bit more clear, I'll remember as I was in uh, Portsmouth, Virginia, where Deb and I were doing our home service, there was a couple that moved next door to us. The fellow's name was Jeff. The lady's name was Stacy. I remember as they moved over and I said to her, to Deb, I says, Deb, I'm going to go over and meet our neighbors. I went over and introduced myself. And we had began to have some small talk and began building a relationship i never forget one day he was out in the yard, began mowing, and I said, Deb, I'm going to go help Jeff. And so I went back, and I got my mower, and I began to help him mow the yard. I think he thought he hit the jackpot as he found a neighbor who was going to help him do his yard work. But that's what neighbors do, right? They help one another. They're kind to one another. And so we began building a relationship. I'll never forget one day I says, Deb, I'd like to invite Jeff and Stacy over to our house for a meal. And so uh, she said, that's great. And I said, you know what I'd like? I'd really love a good southern fried chicken dinner. And a fried chicken like my mom makes it. And so she called mom and figured out how it was uh, the particular recipe. And, uh, you know, I wanted some big old biscuits and some mashed potatoes and gravies, overcooked green beans and some sweet tea. I mean, good southern iced tea. Oh, I couldn't wait for the meal. And, uh, you know, we were pretty poor. And so I went to the to the grocery store and I bought the meat. And, uh, you know, there in the grocery store, they had meat that was expired. Well, not really expired, but that day it was due. And I thought, well, Deb and I were both MKs. You know, I thought anything you buy in America is good. So I bought it and it was cheap. And I got home and she started frying it up. And I remember smelling of it thinking, boy, that doesn't smell like mom's fried chicken. (laughs) I remember I went over there and I took a little slice out of the skillet and I tasted it. And sure enough, it didn't taste like mom's fried chicken either. It was rotten. 
Deb, she wasn't very impressed with me at all. And I said to her, I says, Deb, don't worry about it. After all, it's not about the food. It's about the relationship. That flew like a lead brick at that moment. And out the door I went as fast as I could. And I says, listen, don't worry. I'll go to Hardy's. I'll buy some fried chicken. No one's going to know the difference anyhow. And I'll get it before they get back here. And so I took off. I went back as I was driving in the driveway here. They were already walking across the yard. Well, the cat was out of the bag as they realized I had uh, really blown it and bought fried chicken. Well, nonetheless, I uh, remember as we were sitting down, we were getting ready to pray. And you know, at our house, when we pray, we normally hold hands around the table. Perhaps many of you do the same. And so Jeff and Stacy, they were at our house. And so that's what we do. We hold hands. And so we began to pray. And then after we did, began in conversation. I remember asking Jeff, I says, hey, Jeff, so what do you do? He says, well, currently I'm in the Coast Guard. He says, but uh, actually I'm a chef. Oh, I'm going to tell you something. My wife, she kicked me right under the table. Uh, But you know what? They realized right off the bat we were just normal people. We began building relationship little by little. I remember one day Deb said to me, Todd, I think I'm going to ask Stacy if she'd like to... uh, be discipled if she'd like to learn about, about Jesus. I said, Deb, that's a great idea. And uh, so one day they came over and Deb asked her, said, Stacy, would you be interested in learning about the Bible? She says, you know, Deb, I really would. I've never read the Bible in my life. And uh, so they began to meet every Tuesday. I remember the second Tuesday they were to meet, there was a question in the materials my wife was going through. And the question was simply this, do you know Jesus? If you don't know Jesus, would you like to know him? And Deb said to me, Todd, she said, it's way too early to ask that question. This gal had never even opened a Bible. She didn't understand chapters and verses and books, anything. She says, we're just not at that point. I says, Deb, don't worry. You ask the question. Let's see what God does. And so I began praying for the next five days. Tuesday came. She came over, rang the doorbell, came into the house, sat on the couch. They had some small talk, and then they began. And Deb asked the question, Stacy, do you know Jesus? I'm going to leave that story there for just a minute. You know, when Jeff and Stacy moved over to our house, moved over into our neighborhood. They were unmarried, living together. But I want you to know, I didn't need to fix them to love them. You hear what I'm saying? God in his mercy can do that. You know what our call is? Our call is to love lost people. And so I just loved them. And Deb just loved them. And I remember one day Jeff called me over and he says, Todd, Stacy and I, we know we've been living together. We know that's not right. We want to get married. Would you be willing to marry us? Oh, I was delighted to do so. I was actually in the process of being ordained back at that time. And so unfortunately, I wasn't able to do that. But I said, Jeff, I'll be there at the wedding. You tell me when it is, and we'll be there at the wedding. Well, the great day of the wedding came. And I'll never forget. We were down on the dockside there in Portsmouth. And then uh, here he was with all his Coast Guard buddies. They were dressed in their old whites. Boy, they looked handsome. And there was Stacy uh, in a beautiful dress with her friends there. And after the wedding was over, they invited us to join them for a meal. And so we went to the meal, and I'll never forget, they have ordered these huge big fish dinners out looking out over the bay there. It was a beautiful spot. And uh, uh, I guess nothing washes a fish dinner down better than a good steiner of beer. So here was all of this beer around this table. Now I want to remind you, I'm a little MK from Papua, Indonesia there, and I'd never been in a context like this. It was as foreign of a context as I've ever been in, in my life. You know, you don't have to go overseas to get into foreign missions. And there I was. Well, the guys, they were starting already. And about that time, Stacy says, guys, uh, would you just stop a minute? We'd like Todd to pray and to bless our food and to bless our marriage. Well, I was delighted to do so. And so I bowed my head to begin to pray. And Stacy, uh, she reached out her hands. You see, they'd been over to our house many times. And before we eat, we always hold hands. And so she thought that's the only way you do it around the table. So here were all these Coast Guard guys. I mean, they were monsters, big dudes like Ben. And uh, they had muscles in places. I don't even have places. They were big guys. And uh, I want you to know, I prayed a long prayer. I had those boys, those poor boys sweating. I mean, they had never held hands with a man so long in all their life. 
building bridges of love over which the gospel message passes in a way that's understandable to the ear. I want you to know if you want to be used of God, he'll put you in all kinds of places, touching all kinds of lives, as you be willing to be used of him to build bridges of love. Well, Tuesday came, and Deb asked, Stacy, do you know Jesus? Deb, I don't know Jesus. Would you like to know Jesus? You know, I would. That day, my wife had the wonderful privilege of sharing the good news message to our next-door neighbor, and she found Jesus Christ as her Lord and Savior. I'll never forget Sunday. It was a glorious day. It was Communion Sunday. We were sitting on the front three pews with our youth group there in Portsmouth. And there were Jake and Stacy. They showed up at the back of the church. They made their way all the way down and scooted in beside us. The communion elements were passed, and I said to Deb, I said, Deb, tell Stacy she can partake of communion. She's a child of the king. She leaned over and she said, what is it? Can you imagine? In our country, there are people as lost as any that I've ever known in Erie and Jaya or in West Africa waiting for you and me to be used of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords to build bridges of love of which the gospel message can pass in a way that's understandable to the ear. If God does anything in our hearts this week, my deep longing is that he would grip you with the importance of being a tool that he can use to love people in order that they too would be brought into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Let me pray with you. Father, do this special work in our lives. Lord, it's very possible that many of us will be put into places and situations in which are so different than what is normal for us. But we willingly do it for our King. We do it for the sake of lost souls that need the love of the Master. Pour yourself out in power among this group here at the Erie Alliance Church. And may there be countless numbers that will give testimony because of this neighbor who loved me, I found Jesus. Because of this one who reached out to me, I found Jesus. Lord, as we give up of our rights in order to be used of the King. Do it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. It's been a great morning. It's been a great start to Missions Week. It's going to be a great time. I hope you're ready to embrace what God has for us. Remember, on your way out this morning, the packets, pick one of them up, uh, participate with us this week, even at home, students tonight with Todd, more great stories, another great evening to connect, senior adults tomorrow night, and then you've got the rest of the week's uh, events before you. Don't forget, participate with us and see what God's doing.